Welcome back to the show that tells you you are a quantum computer with free will. But hey, I'm just one guy, so I want to hear what you have to say. Please leave a comment below, like the video, subscribe to the channel, and let's get this discussion started. Join me inside the mystery of numbers. Come and hop for metaphysical news. Zero concepts become objects and then become quantum. Join us for an episode of quantum consciousness. Hi there, my name is Justin Riddle, and this is the fifth episode of Quantum Consciousness. And today we will be talking about digital computers. So to briefly recap a little bit of the important points from our previous episodes, I introduced Roger Penrose's three-world model of consciousness. The three-world model consists of three different worlds. The first world is the physical world, the world of you know, what's measurable out in the universe, the physical objects that we see around us, the mental world, which is our sense of self, our emotions, our experience, the narrative flow through time. And then the platonic world is the world of mathematics, of concepts, um, potentially the laws of physics, um, shared understanding, and potentially meaning. And then I introduce the three principles of quantum mechanics, measurement, superposition, and entanglement. And today we will be really diving into that principle of measurement in the physical world as we talk about digital computers. So that'll be sort of the take home message is really appreciating how digital computers really define um, the physical world and this concept of measurement. So more on that uh, to come today. So to introduce this topic of digital computers, why do I find this important and meaningful? Well, first of all, I think it, it really is a simple and clear-cut example of what the three-world model is all about, because um, you'll see that Alan Turing, the founder of digital computers, described computers using three different um, aspects or components and they they feel really strongly analogous to the three world model so in some sense it, it really kind of helps to digest um, this model in another sense um, when I was learning about consciousness uh, taking digital computer classes or taking computer science classes and learning about a digital computer was super foundational to my understanding of consciousness. And you'll see that we come back to digital computers again and again and again. So even though it's a bit of a complex topic, it really sets the groundwork for thinking about consciousness and thinking about um, our place in the universe. And a big part of that is really demystifying digital computers because what I found um, in teaching my course on quantum consciousness that again and again I'd have students that had some sort of magical mystical concept of you know artificial intelligence and digital computers are going to reverse engineer the human mind and so really to have any discussion about consciousness and our place in the universe, I find that it's really helpful to build a common shared understanding of what a digital computer is. 
And then we can start talking about, you know, the limitations of digital computers. What can they do? What can't they do? Where, you know, in digital computation, can we describe phenomena of consciousness and where are we unable to, and therefore we need to move beyond it into potentially quantum computers or, or you know, additional uh, concepts to, to get at, you know, what we're talking about. So without further ado, I will introduce a digital computer. So Alan Turing defined a digital computer in this landmark paper. I highly recommend reading it. It's very accessible, easy to read. And he defines there as being three aspects to a, to a digital computer. The first aspect is the store. And this um, is the capacity to store information, to hold bits of information. And we'll go into what that really entails, which is really the core of digital computers. The ability to manipulate information. And this is uh, what he called the executive unit. Modern day terms would be sort of the CPU. And this is a central processing unit, um, which is somewhat analogous to the mental world in that it is transforming information and acting as sort of a central hub. And then finally, we have the control. And the control is really the sort of conceptual, mathematical, uh, meaningful concept of what the computer is doing. Um, so I'll expand on this in a moment. So David Marr also describes a digital computer as having three different levels of analysis on how we can understand an information processing system. And what are those three different levels? Well, at the physical level, we have the implementation. So in a digital computer, the implementation is in bits and in wires sending um, electricity, which we'll go into. And then there is at the mental level, the algorithmic level. How do we transform from input to output? So if I give you input A, how do I get to output B? What are the steps that we have to go through to go from one place to the next? And then finally, uh, the computational level. And this is the question, really, why? Why did we make the computer? What is it computing? And you know, how are we going from A to B? But, but, but why are we going from A to B? Are we doing addition? Are we doing multiplication? Are we saving and storing or projecting information onto a screen? Right. So the, the why of, of what we're doing, what we're doing, is really that platonic level, um, sort of the meaningful conceptual level. So I've, I've really laid out these three different aspects of a digital computer. And while the algorithmic level or the executive unit is similar to the mental world, it's not quite the mental world. Um, and while the, the computational level or the control is akin to the platonic world in that, you know, you're implementing some sort of mathematical concept, it isn't directly the mathematical world. However, the world of the store, um, the part that maps onto the physical world, this is really core to what the physical world is. Um, and so what is a store and what really defines a digital computer? 
This is the bit. This is the ability to have a zero or a one. It's the creation of a solid state. True, false, zero, one, up, down, whatever you wanna call it, right? This is discrete. Zero and one can be thought of as being orthogonal to each other, where you're, you're either zero or you're one. There's no such thing as being zero and one, and you just have to pick one or the other. It is true or false. This notion of bits or binary is really the defining feature of digital computers. And in a way, and I'll come back to this, this is the defining feature of the physical world. So what is solid state physics and how do we create a digital computer? Well, the real key here is that we need to create what has been referred to as the solid state illusion. We essentially need to create something that will maintain a zero or a one through time. And the challenge is that we live in the world of quantum mechanics, of all this chaos, all this stuff happening at this really fundamental level. And so it's actually much more challenging than you would think to create a solid state. So I think a very simple analogy is I take a penny or some sort of coin. It has a heads and a tails. If I put it on heads and I leave it on a desk and I come back the next day, well, chances are the penny uh, is still on heads from me putting it there yesterday. However, there could have been an earthquake. Uh, someone might have come in and flipped the coin over, while unlikely. Um, and the question is, how do we create solid states in the world when there is all this random chaos and stuff that, that can kind of go awry? And so really, we need to create a solid state approximation because of all this inherent um, chaos in the world and it actually is an amazing feat like an amazing engineering feat that we are able to create zeros and ones as solid states that persist into the future and really the amazing part about computers and the you know ingenious aspect of a computer is that we're able to create something that is truly solid and will maintain this physical state through time into the future. And the challenge is that we want to make a lot of these physical states. Um, and so while it might be easy to like think about a penny or some large object maintaining um, its state through time, the challenge with a digital computer is that we want billions and billions and billions of bits in order to store all the amount of information that we're creating, right? So a byte is eight bits, um, eight zeros or ones, but we deal nowadays in gigabytes, megabytes, kilobytes, these very large thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions and billions of bits. The challenge is to create a bunch of these solid states. So how do we do that? Well, the way we do it is using transistors. And the simple way of thinking about a transistor is that there's two different pockets 
And so this goes into material science and this, this really basic um, level of engineering that I am no expert in. But my understanding is that there's these two pockets of materials. And essentially what we want to do is we want to have a cloud of electrons that are occupying one of these two pockets. And there's a small channel between the two. And what we want to do is we want to say, are all the electrons in this pocket on the left or are they in the pocket on the right? The pocket on the left is a one pocket on the right is a zero. And then we need a way to be able to push the electrons over to the other side and then get them locked into there and then push them back, you know, when we want to. And we want these pockets of electrons to be stable through time such that the one and the zero um, are held separate and we can tell them apart. And so what's kind of amazing is that right now, these two pockets in these transistors are on the order of a countable number of atoms. So we're at the order of 10 or 15 atoms separating these, these different transistors and these different pockets. And so the, the challenge right now is that in your computer, you have these little pockets with electron clouds being pushed into the one state or the zero state. But guess what? A cosmic ray from space can come down onto the planet, hit that transistor in your laptop, and boom, one of the ones becomes a zero and one of the zeros becomes a one. And this actually happens all the time. It's kind of wild to think about, but because these pockets are so close together, chaotic environmental factors can randomly and unexpectedly shift your electron cloud from one pocket into the other. And there's not really any solution to this. This is an inevitability of living in a chaotic universe and trying to grasp onto some sort of solid thing within the universe. Um, so how does our computer handle that? Well, there is an enormous amount of infrastructure built into your computer to handle that level of chaos and to check that your zeros and ones are the right way that they should be. So a simple solution is redundancy, right? So for every bit that you want to store, we're just going to store four of them. And then the cosmic ray is probably only going to hit one of your bits, right? Come on. And so the cosmic ray hits one of the four, and now we just take a vote and we say, oh, well, three out of four say it's a one, and only one of those four says it's a zero, so we're just going to say it's a one. Um, in reality, there's much more clever ways, but simple, and you could go understand them if you cared about it, to back up our bits. Um, so there's redundant systems and sort of checks and balances put in place to make sure and double check that our ones and zeros haven't been randomly flipped. And then there's algorithms in place changing those ones and zeros back to what they should be um, if, if you notice that there's some sort of problem there. All righty. So what is really fascinating about this um, beyond just that is that our transistors are getting to be the smallest that they could ever be. And so kind of the shocker here is that our transistors are on the order of 10 or 15 atoms. But if we ever get down to 
about five atoms of separation, superpositions and quantum mechanical effects will take over and we won't be able to maintain our zeros and ones. These electron clouds will be moving around across atoms and we won't be able to create that energy barrier to separate the one and zero from each other. So this is pretty mind blowing. Um, and I don't think most people realize this, but our digital computers are kind of capping out at being the most impressive that they could ever be in a fundamental sense, um, at least in like a hardware sense. So there's a limitation on how tiny we can make our transistors. And so while we've seen this exponential growth in our ability to store um, information onto our computers, our hard drives are getting bigger and bigger and bigger we're running into a fundamental limitation where we got a few more tricks in the book to upgrade our, our systems, but we're almost at what's called the digital brick wall where we can no longer improve the hardware of digital computation or of digital computers fundamentally. In a in-principle sense, our digital computation is almost maxed out at as powerful as it could possibly get. Um, more on this in a later video when I talk about Ray Kurzweil's concept of a singularity and how quantum computers are coming on the scene and might pick up where digital computers are, are sort of um, stopping. All right, so if I want to send a bit, so we talked about the storage of bits in zeros and ones in these little packets, um, these little pockets of electron clouds. If I want to send a signal from one location to another, I have the same problem. I need to send a cloud of electrons across a wire. And how this works is you, you either send a high voltage or a low voltage signal and you apply some threshold where, you know, if it's, you know, th this higher voltage, then it's a one. If it's a lower voltage, it's a zero. And essentially you're sending current along a wire and you're hoping that you get, um, you know, that your signal is transmitted and that the receiver gets the proper pattern of ones and zeros. But once again, the same thing can happen. Cosmic ray comes in, hits your wire, all those electrons that are getting sent get shoved um, in some chaotic way, and your one becomes a zero, your zero becomes a one. And this is, once again, something that you can't really ever prepare yourself for but you just have to create redundancies and checks and balances to, to sort of double check that you have received the proper code. So now to contextualize this concept of solid states into the, the concepts of quantum mechanics, this really comes down to the measurement principle. So previously I talked to you about how measurement is this process where you take this superposition of multiple possible states and you reduce it down to a zero or a one. You're taking a superposition and knocking it into just a zero or a one and this is a solid digital state. So digitization is really core to quantum mechanics, right? And I'll, I'll get to this in the next video, but, but quantum computers are building on top of digital computers. It's not... I mean, it's a brand new technology, but it's so not, um, it's not so alien as you would think. 
And really, digital computers are fundamental to even understanding how quantum computers work. Um, so you're reducing your superposition into a binarized state. It's either here or it's there or it's moving this fast or that fast. And your quantum system is becoming digitized and becoming solid within that measurement. And so one way to think about digital computation is that we're really trying to lock in this measurement. So every time I measure the digital computer, I always get a one, I always get a zero. It's as if it's a quantum computer that never changes or never evolves. So we're cutting out that chaotic evolution of states and we're trying to reduce it to a single state. And we do this by using clouds of electrons. So every electron is a quantum system. It's evolving and superposing, and they're all bumping into each other and measuring each other. But we want the cloud itself to behave as sort of a meta solid state, where all of those electrons collectively are now being measured and the collective location of those electrons is the one or the zero. So by blowing up a little bit, we're able to reduce the quantum mechanical effects. And you'll hear this a lot where you say, you know, oh, I look around the room and I don't see any superpositions. I don't see any quantum weirdness going on. And the reason being is that it's so macroscopic to look at, let's say, a desk that yeah, there's all these atoms and electrons at this really tiny scale that are superposing, but by the time you blow it up to the level of a desk, it's now solid. And so it really is the same principle that's being utilized in a digital computer, where we wanna create solid states, but we wanna make them, it's kind of a paradox or like a, uh, you know, a challenge, you wanna make them as small as possible without hitting pure quantum mechanics and then suddenly you can't maintain the solidity. So that's really the fundamental um, challenge with digital computation. All right, so moving on to using a digital computer. And so I would argue to you that the digital computer is really defined by measurement and this everything I talked about so far about creating solid states and sending digital signals through wires and maintaining them. This is really the core aspect of what a digital computer is. And then the next things we can talk about are CPUs, processing information, and then writing algorithms at this sort of platonic level using the concepts of math and implementing them in a digital computer. And these are really like how you're using these solid states that you've created. So to introduce a CPU, there's this really cool notion of a universal Turing machine. And the idea here is that a universal Turing machine can compute any algorithm ever. So as long as you can create a digital computer that can process any input A to any output B, this is now a universal Turing machine, and then you can program it to do literally anything. And so theoretically, 
the extreme case would be you could take a tree, rig up a bunch of beer cans and string, pull on certain beer cans, and the system of pulleys um, between the beer cans could theoretically act as a universal Turing machine. And so I will sometimes joke around and say, you know, when we're talking about reducing the human mind or human consciousness to a digital computer, you could theoretically rig it up with a bunch of beer cans and string in the branches of a tree. And by pulling on this and that, you can compute input A to output B. And uh, it's just, it kind of makes a mockery of the whole thing in some sense, but in another sense, um, you really can compute anything as long as you have solid states, the ability to create solid states, and then the ability to perform a base set of transformations. So what are these transformations I'm talking about? Typically, they're referred to as logic gates. Um, and some really simple logic gates are AND, the AND gate, right? So I have two inputs, A and B. And if input A and input B are both one, then output a one. If it's a one and a zero, or a zero and a one, or a zero and a zero, then output zero. So this is the AND function. So what you can do is you can rig up a circuit such that when you input you know, a high voltage and another high voltage, it outputs a high voltage, another one, but any other combo of high voltage, low voltage, and you don't get a high voltage out, you get a low voltage out, that's the zero. So in a practical sense, um, you just have to rig up some electronics that will convert your inputs into your outputs in the way that you want it to be converted. And then you now know in your head, this is an AND logic gate. This is doing the AND function, right? And so then I can start taking these logic gates and rig them up one after another. And then I can input some more complex input and get a more complex output. But what's kind of crazy is that uh, it's really just these very simple logic gates where you just imagine higher low voltage coming in and higher low voltage coming out. And one uh, fun fact is that there's what's called the universal sets. Um, and these are uh, a set of logic gates or a small set of logic gates that can compute any set of input to any set of output. And so what's kind of remarkable is there's this gate called the not and gate. It's pretty much uh, the same thing as the and gate, except it's the, the not version of that. So if you have two ones coming in, it outputs a zero. Any other combination of zeros and ones, it outputs a one. Using just the not and gate or the NAND gate, you can create any logical computation take any input that you want to go into any output you can rig up a series of nand gates to run that computation so it's kind of wild to think about but you know i talked about told you about transistors and sending signals on wires well now i can create any transformation uh, a universal turing machine out of just not AND gates. And so I think the takeaway of this 
is really just to try to demystify the digital computer because at the end of the day, it's really just a system of zeros and ones going from input to output. And all of the fancy things that we see in our modern digital computers and all this crazy, amazing software that we have is very reducible to simple logical functions. And so everything that you see in the digital realm is laboriously created by someone out there. And so if you think like, you know, I move my mouse here and something pops up, someone has sat down and calculated every single aspect of what is happening and there is no magic to it. It is brute force, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of people caring about, you know, where the pixel of the mouse is in this location. And it. I guess my point here is that we tend to just think, oh, there's probably some magical solution out there. But the reality is, and maybe this is trivial to most people, that someone really sat down and figured out all the details. And they thought about if this happens, but this happens, but then maybe if that happens, then oh, we want to do this. But if that happens, then we don't want to do this. And every single detail of your software, of your computer, is built up from this super basic level of zeros and ones. And then it comes down to like a screen. Okay, I want to shine a light, turn light on, turn a little bit of the red light on, turn a little bit of the green light on, right? It really comes down to this brute force, basic level of clever people figuring out ways to 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 make it happen efficiently. Um, but I think that's just important for us to think about. And so one of the uh, earliest programmers was Lady Lovelace. And there's this really great quote from her that I want to just read. And this early computer that she was referring to is called the Analytic Engine. And the quote says, The Analytic Engine has no pretensions to originate anything. It can do whatever we know how to order it to perform. So in essence, it's basically summarizing what, what I just said about, about all this software. There is no magic going on. It is people sitting down and figuring out a solution and then hard code writing out all the details and really making it tick. Um, and I think a good exercise for this, and this is one of the, the early assignments I got when I was taking an intro computer science class, is just take any two dates um, in time and calculate how many days are between those two dates. And it seems pretty easy, but then you think to yourself, okay, I got to think about leap years. Um, I got to make sure that I'm, I'm counting every month and every month has a different number of days. And so I want to like make sure I'm adding up the right number of days. Um, yeah, it, 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 it seems trivial, but then when you sit down and calculate the number of days between two dates, it is kind of challenging. I mean, it's not, it's not too difficult for anyone out there. You can do it, but you really have to sit down and think about all the different scenarios and cases of making sure that you're calculating it right. 
Um, and so someone went and did that. And so now it happens under the hood, but at one point someone had to go figure that out for themselves. So yeah, I want to, I want to have a brief comment on, um, artificial intelligence and modern sort of advances in software. And there really is a bunch of amazing stuff happening in the domain of artificial intelligence. And a lot of this comes down to, at the end of the day, simple principles, but then applying them at these massive scales. So when you have um, these fancy software tools, for example, coming out by, uh, from Google, these neural networks, um, essentially what they're doing is you're exposing these um, networks to a bunch of images and essentially you're just calculating similarity differences between different things. And I guess we'd have to sit down and really walk through the architecture of what these networks look like. But at the end of the day, it's very simple mathematical principles of if I see the same thing happening over and over, bump up this weight a little bit. If, I, if it's not working out, bump it down. And essentially you add a bunch of complexity, you add a bunch of different units, and they're basically just looking for patterns. Are these things the same or different? Right. If I add them together or, I, or if I subtract them, how close to zero are they? Right. That would be like how similar two things are. Um, and so while a lot of this stuff seems fantastical and really amazing, um, Google Deep Dream, for example, there's these really sort of amazing images that you can make. Um, but at the end of the day, it still is simple principles and, and really simple mathematical functions that you can implement um, looking for patterns, running quick calculations. And this isn't to belittle those accomplishments, but more so to empower you to, to think about how you could go and spend the time and figure out how this stuff works and at the end of the day, it's addition, it's subtraction, it's simple commands doing things at massive scale and then yielding these really interesting results. Um, so one final thing I think on that same end is that your CPU on your computer, it runs, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but it runs on the order of 20 commands, period. Everything that your computer does is just this central CPU doing one of 20 commands, and the commands are at the binary level of bits, right? Zeros and ones, shift the bits, shift it back, copy something, uh, flip them, not them. You know, you can run simple logical commands like and, or, zor. Um, and at the end of the day, it's logic gates running all of this stuff in your computer. And cell phones have even fewer commands. I think uh, there's this reduced um, logical set where, and this might be different from when I first learned it, but it's on the order of eight or 10 different commands that your phone is doing, and that's it. There's one of eight commands happening in your phone, 
And granted, they happen about you know a billion per second, so they're very fast. But it at the end of the day, it is these very simple digital conversions through logic gates and then scaling them up to this massive scale. And we can do these really amazing things. And so in a sense, we're taking these platonic concepts or these this software that we want to create and then we're just making it happen or making it out of these tools. And these are very simple digital tools that empower us to make a lot of things. So I'm gonna end this uh, digital computer discussion um, talking about some things that AI will never be able to do. And this is speaking about digital AI because who knows what, what could happen when we start making quantum computers and you know, I don't, I don't think we know what, what that would entail. But um, there's been some really great books written on the topic, but essentially design, storytelling, um, empathy, the human experience, all of these things that are very human and core, these could never be outsourced to an AI. And so I think if you're thinking about a career or a job, one cool thing to think about is like my skill set should or you know if you can orient your skill set to be storytelling or design something aesthetic um the creation of knowledge or seeking truth um and i think a lot of like community involvement and stuff could also fit into this but essentially those jobs will only get emphasized more and more as we have these digital revolutions um, in industry taking place. And one movie that I really enjoyed, which I think highlights this, is the movie Her. Um, and this is a movie set in the future about you know hyper-intelligent AI that sort of is, is a companion to people. And I think one subtle thing about this movie is that if you realize all the people in the movie have really interesting jobs. And so the protagonist of the movie works for the equivalent of like Hallmark and he makes uh, greeting cards for people and basically cards for special occasions. And when you first see this, it's really bizarre to see him um, writing like a, a birthday card from a husband to, to his wife and this guy, the protagonist, is writing the birthday card or whatever card it was from the, the husband to the wife. And you're thinking to yourself, that is bizarre, right? But, I mean, Hallmark already does that. We already go to the card store and pick out a card. And so this really is like a natural extension of the, the card industry. And the card industry yeah, is probably something that will survive through the ages because it taps into something uniquely human and, and you know, I don't know, fundamentally human about us where we want to empathize and, and share feelings with other people. And so a market that, that enables that is going to persist into the future. And we'll probably see the emergence of jobs that we thought nowadays might not be sustainable or realistic um, a lot of these more i guess like maybe fluffy soft work 
um, is going to become more and more central. And another character, the um, love interest in the movie, uh, she is working on a video game, but she's not just designing the tree in the background on level seven. She is making the entire video game from start to finish. And it's because the tools are so advanced that you don't need a team of software engineers designing the landscape in the background and all this really, you know, maybe lower level work, you know, grinding through the creation of background scenes um, or making all these like um, characters, you know, NPCs in the background. So and and it really frees up the character to make the plot and the the interface. And so yeah, I think I think that movie is a really interesting take on what the future of, you know, seeing digital computation out to its end, it's going to give us these really powerful tools that will enable um the more like humanistic um jobs to really to really flourish. So I look forward to that future. So in conclusion, signing out, uh, the digital computer really highlights that physical world. The bits, the binary, really exemplifies the measurement process in quantum mechanics. The executive unit is analogous to a central you know, processing cognitive mental state, which we, we talk about in the wave function of a quantum computer. Um, of course, it's not quite the same. And then there's the control over the digital computer. This is the why. Why is the computer doing what it's doing? This is mathematics. This is social media, the creation of a picture. Um, all of these abstract concepts are being implemented in the digital computer. But the digital computer is a series of voltages at, at high or low and electron clouds being shift left or right. And so the digital computer is really only what we program it to do. And so the platonic level within the computer isn't actually the platonic world, but it's, you know, humans programming it to do meaningful things. And so that control of that digital computer is platonic-like in that it is the embodiment of concepts or mathematics within a digital computer, although the digital computer has no understanding essentially of what it's doing. So more on those questions of epistemology um, in the future. And next week we'll go into the basics of a quantum computer and sort of compare those to a digital computer now that we understand the basics of that. Alrighty, signing off. <laughs>